Hi folks, Jack Spierko here. Today you are listening to an episode of TSP Rewind. <laughs> Commercial free versions of past episodes. Podcasts blast from the past. I put these up when I can't do a show due to professional commitments or rare vacations. These podcasts will appear in standard iTunes, Stitcher, and other feeds, but will be titled TSP Rewind Episodes and numbered accordingly. And today, folks, we are rewinding back to episode 1253. This was an interview with Brandon Sheard, the Farmstead Meatsmith on Curing Meats, first published on November 21st, 2013. Brandon's an awesome guy, and he's truly a master at what he does, and I think he's only gotten better uh, since, since this episode originally aired. Today, we're going to talk with Brandon about what is curing and how the traditional approach differs from the conventional approach to curing meats. How bacon has been commodified, how to make bacon, it's really easier than you'd ever think. How do you do a slaughter day, uh, how, how what you do on the day you slaughter an animal can affect the meat when you cure it. Um, how cured meats will influence your kitchen. How ma modern practices of butchery influence the grass-fed beef in our country. And why most grass-fed beef is trimmed with its fat today. Um, what are some resources to help people gain the traditional approach? We'll talk about what charcuterie is. We'll even talk about how to make a ham and what you should do with venison. And uh, I, I thought this would be a good, fun episode to put in here. I don't think I've done a lot of uh, interviews in the rewind episodes. This one was really, really great. And what I loved about this episode way back when we did it, again, originally in uh, 2013, is over the next couple of months, I got pictures sent to me of people that had started curing meats and learning more about the process and different ways that they were doing it. Some of the stuff that Brandon teaches and some other innovative ways, the things that people did so that they could cure meats in areas where they didn't have the right climate to do some of the things that Brandon does. Uh, it was actually pretty fantastic, and I'm kind of hoping that will happen again. Uh, since this is an interview that is very much straightforward and how-to and inform uh, informative as to industry practices, I don't have a huge new introduction for it today. That, that'll about wrap it up. Um, but here we go all the way back to November 21st, 2013. And remember, while these episodes are commercial-free, you can always support the Survival Podcast and the work that we do by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. With that said, it's about time I got my questions answered. Um, I love cured meats. I love fermented meats. I love salty meat, smoky meat. I adore it, and it's freaking expensive. It's so expensive, and you either pay a lot of money to get a little bit of really good stuff, Or you go cheap and you get a lot of a meat that's not so great. Um, I've wanted to learn how to do this myself for a long time. We had a, a guest on that gave us a great entry. Actually, since he was on and I learned about Morton Tender quick, quick, I made some of the recipes on the Morton site. The one that came out the best for us was the beef salami. It was really good. The beef pepperoni, too. But it's, it's not what I'm really trying to hit a home run with in this, this, you know, making my own stuff. And I think Brandon can help me and you guys kind of walk through deeper into that gateway with a lot of other great stuff. Again, he comes with Paul Wheaton, the Duke of Permaculture's highest recommendation. And uh, he's just an awesome guy. I've never met him until right now. But I can tell you from watching his videos and reading his blog, he's just an awesome human being. And it gives me great pleasure to say, hey, Brandon, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. 
Hey, you came to me with uh, Paul Wheaton's highest recommendation, the man who's fond of calling himself now the Duke of Permaculture. Uh, so that's that's awesome. And, uh, you know, I it's like he told me about you actually long, long before we kind of synced up. And I had like a billion things going on. I just never really got a chance to, to watch your videos. Then I got into this meat curing thing I want to learn more about. And yeah. we ended up connected. And I finally sat back and watched like your video on taking a hog apart. Yeah. And it made me want to, like, become a hog farmer. Awesome. I mean, it, it was just awesome. So I know you're an awesome guy, but could you, before we even get into, like, the how-tos and the what's, tell people how you ended up being the farmstead meatsmith. I mean, did you grow up butchering hogs, or um, is this something that you kind of came to in a curvy path? Yeah, extremely curvy path. It was by way of uh, academia. I grew up in Southern California, typical suburban well, a great suburban family, I should say, but completely divorced from any farming or definitely no meat processing going on. And uh, my wife, Lauren, and I, were we were headed down the path to become professors uh, on the college level. I have a master's degree in English Renaissance literature. <laughs> and uh, one day we kind of got tired of the academic thing, um, kind of felt like, if you could be persuasive and intimidating enough, you could be a successful professor. And so we were kind of in a vague search for something a little more concrete and demanding. And uh, long story short, I quit my job in the city because I live on an island and I was commuting via ferry. And I was newly married and that ferry commute did not make sense because the point of getting married is to be with your new spouse. And so I quit my job uh, right during our honeymoon and came back to Vashon Island where we live and uh, went door to door to all, you know, 10 businesses in Vashon town. And the day before, a business had opened and it was a butcher shop. And I walked in and I saw that they were selling wine that they made, uh, raw dairy products, including cheese and raw milk and um a whole meat case with the home-cured bacon and everything they were producing on the island. And since that was the coolest thing I'd ever seen, not knowing anything, having no real knowledge of, you know, sound farming practices or small localized economies or anything, I just thought it was awesome. <laughs> and I basically showed up and kept showing up until the owner started paying me. And I worked for him for exactly <laughs> two years. Yeah. I'm just going to hold you up right there. Like, those of you that are trying to find a job in a new career, there's yeah. a tip for you. Anyway, go ahead, Brandon. I'm sorry. That's just awesome, though. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't have a lot of options, and it was by far the coolest thing going on. So um, I, I I got in there, and I started working on the farm. And we were culinarily focused, which was – I'm really thankful for that now – and by that, I mean the owner, he was a chef-y type of guy. He was a chef. And it just so happened that when you want to achieve the greatest uh, flavor, you fall right into the most responsible farming methods, you know, rotational pasture grazing and multi-species environment. And so that's what we did. And um, for me, I kind of had an awakening when I first tried the bacon uh, that the butcher had made. And... I felt like I had sort of been um, kept from something my entire life. I did not know that food could be so delicious. I had no idea. 
it kind of blew my mind. And I felt like, well, obviously this is food. Everything else is some poor excuse for it. And so I need to know how to do this. <laughs> and so that was my motivation because I wanted my family to eat that way, not only because of health, but man, it just tastes so good. And so I really put my head down and worked there for two years during a very chaotic time during the business. And, uh, we were at a point where we had just four or five of us running the entire operation, and that was the farm, the butcher shop, the farmer's market, the dairy, the creamery, the winery, slaughtering two pigs every week, four lambs every week, 50 chickens every week, and occasionally a beef cow. Um, and we were selling meat fresh at the farmer's markets, not frozen, so it kept us on a pretty rigorous schedule. I found that way to get the most value-added product out of one pig was to access traditional peasant curing and charcuterie methods that used every ounce of the pig. You know, you can turn up this massive pig head into something delicate and delicious in head cheese, hmm. and that's more sellable. Um, so that was kind of my education for two years. I did that, and then we stopped that and started Farmstead Meatsmith because I wanted to be home more. We had uh, our second little boy on the way at the time. And so in order to have more time, I started a small business. Which, uh, <laughs> How's that working out for you? Well, you know, I'm at home a lot, but that yep. whole time equation, I'm still working on that one. <laughs> yeah. I know that's how it is for me. I'm, I, I never have to leave anymore, but yet I work all the time. But I love what I do, and I think that that's a, a big part of being a happier person. It is, yeah. yeah. So let's start getting into this. So what exactly is curing meat in, in the broad sense, and, and how does these do these traditional approaches differ from a conventional approach? I mean, everything I see in in the marketplace is nitrite nitrate based we had kind of an entry level show on this and 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 that's what we talked about i've made some simple things like beef salami uh using using that is that necessary or are there other ways to do this yeah i mean there's there's as many ways as there are regions in the world you know um curing is just in my mind controlling water and there's two subcategories I think of with curing, and you can cure through drying out just by removing water or cure by fermentation, which is salami. And the drying out stuff basically is like jerky, but bacon and prosciutto and whole muscle cures fall under that dry curing uh, category. And that's just removing water. It's the easiest thing in the universe. Um, Whereas salami, where you're grinding meat, seasoning it, mixing it, stuffing it into a casing, and then letting it age, and then slicing it and eating it raw, that is dependent upon fermentation, bacteria eating sugar, the right bacteria eating sugars, and preserving it by creating a high acidity. And um, I think that the best way to approach it is to start by making bacon because it is the easiest thing in the universe. I, get, I, I always feel a little awkward because I teach classes on this, hands-on classes on how to make bacon. We go process a pig and we cure the whole pig or just parts of it. And um, it's so easy. It's so absurdly easy and simple because it's a peasant art form. Hmm. You know, this is what housewives did. This was the realm of the family, not experts. 
Um, but in a really beautiful way, they were the experts. They had sensibility, and they could tell if something was putrefied or cured, which we can all do that. It's pretty simple. Right. You trust your, your instincts on stuff like that. I think that we have an innate ability to know that something probably shouldn't be eaten. I'm sure there's some things that have to be done from a safety standpoint, Yeah. but I think that overall, like... Uh, the, the safety police are crazy where they tell you, if your refrigerator gets over 40 degrees, throw your eggs and milk away. And oh, yeah. my response has always been, what temperature do you think the egg was when it came out of the chicken's ass? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right? Or oh, the cow's udder. I mean, come on. It's, 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 it's ridiculous. Um, and if you have a bad egg, dude, I mean, I don't know as much about meat as you do in any way, but I know about eggs. And if you've got a bad egg, you know you've got a bad egg. That's right. So you say bacon's easy to make. Can you talk about, one, how it's been kind of commodified and taken out of the hands of people making it? Two, how do we make it? And three, like, not everybody has – I know this is shocking, but not everybody has a few pigs in the backyard. Sure. And just go out and butcher one. I mean, where do I get the, the right cut of meat to do this if I want to start out doing it without necessarily becoming a, a pig rancher? Yeah, that's 99% of the battle. If you can source a good pig – then all the curing, including salami, is way easier. Um, <clears throat> so that is huge. Just start with a healthy animal. And that, by that I mean source one from a small producer. Usually you can find them at farmer's markets and buy by the quarter or the half. And um, that, that's 90% of your battle is won with that. All you got to do is not mess it up. Okay. And uh, to, bacon is interesting because it's, you know, the bacon that I make for people is not the stuff or that I teach people to make is not the stuff you see in the supermarket. Um, bacon is the, is supposed to be preserved pig flesh. Um, so in addition to being salty and smoky and delicious, it's supposed to be preserved. And the stuff in the supermarket is not preserved. It's, you know, shrink-wrapped, cryovacked, and refrigerated, and it will spoil. So in my mind, it's not bacon. Yeah, when I was a kid, we had a guy that came around. We called him, I don't remember his real name. We just called him the butcher. He came around in a little truck, and he sold stuff. And he would sell big slabs of bacon that my grandmother just hung up in the kitchen. Oh, beautiful. Yeah, and I don't know how Our to make woman. that. Yeah, so that, that's, that's what my kitchen looks like. And um, the process is extremely simple. You probably know what it is without me telling you. You put salt on pig belly for a little while. And it pulls the water out, then you rinse off the salt, dry it, and you hang it in your kitchen, and then you begin eating it. And it keeps until the end of the cosmos or until you eat it all, whichever comes first. Um, <clears throat> it's the easiest thing in the world. And usually what I do is I mix equal parts salt to sugar, and I use natural, uh, you know, coarse sea salt. I like natural sourced salts. And the only real subtlety that you would want to try to develop is how to not over-salt things, because that's what everyone does with their first batch. And there's several strategies you can do, one of them being don't put on too much salt and never let it sit in liquid, because as the salt sits on the surface of the meat, it pulls water out, and that water is a salty brine. And if the meat sits in that brine, it becomes over-salty to the taste. Okay. And so I just check it every day, drain off the brine, add a little bit more salt if I see that the rocks I added the previous day had been dissolved. And it's done with that salting process when it's achieved some rigidity and when you don't see any more water being leached into the tub or the roasting tray that you've got it in your fridge being salted in. So I'm taking a big piece of pork belly, salt, yeah. sugar on it, that's it. 
mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm letting it dry itself out, and I am keeping it refrigerated during that process. Yeah, and that's more convenient. You could keep it in a cool, dry place, you know, in your basement, but the nice thing about the refrigerator is it's always right at arm's reach. It's easy to check on it every day, and it's insect and rodent safe. So if I do that, and I get to the point where, and I know what you're saying, like bacon has a feel to it. It's yeah. not mushy anymore. That's it's right. solid. It's hard. And it looks like bacon. And when it gets to that point, you're saying it, it's preserved and I can hang that up in, from the roof of my kitchen. That's right, yeah. I don't like to recommend, you know, so many days per pound or so many pounds of salt per pound of meat because yeah. everyone's fridge is different, every pork belly is different, and every salt is different. And so I just say when it's achieved rigidity, it's no longer that floppy meat that you're mentioning, and when you're not getting puddles of water in the curing tub anymore, because Mm. that's all you're doing. You're removing water. That's what cures it. That's what preserves it. That's that's awesome. And it it, it does sound beyond easy. It almost – see, I don't know if you're familiar with biltong. Mm. A little bit. I've never made it. I teach people to make biltong, and the process is remarkably similar, and everybody oversalts it. Yeah. Um, because they're afraid that it's too simple, or they want to put it in a box with a light bulb or something they've seen on. But it's basically you take you know any kind of a this is more of a red meat thing, yeah. trim it of fat, and, and it does need well you don't have to, but when you do this, the fat tastes like salty candle wax. So you yeah. probably want to use leaner cuts for this. You sprinkle it with apple cider vinegar. Mm-hmm. You use uh, salt on it, and you know like a sea salt or, or something like that, and certainly a non-ionized salt. Um, a little bit of coriander and black pepper, and it sits in the refrigerator for a day, and then you hang it up in a dry environment. Nice. And that is the whole thing. Yeah. And the biggest complaint I get is it's too salty, yeah. uh, or people store it when it's still wet in an oxygen-deprived environment, and then it'll mold. But as long as you let it dry, yeah. that's it. And I even tried that, Brandon, where people were like, I want to do it in my dehydrator. I put it in a dehydrator, like an Excalibur. Yeah. The first day it looked like it was going to be perfect. It didn't come out right. It's not designed to do that. You just mm-hmm. let the salt do the work. Absolutely. Yeah, and my goal, the more bacon, the more prosciutto, the more pork I cure, I want it to go somewhere. You know, I don't want to just taste salty pork. That's not the point. Yeah. All that is good, and it will definitely be preserved and safe. Um, I like for it to go good. Not go bad, but go good. And so I keep trying to add the salt quantity back and the time on the salt um, so that I can really only use the salt as a means to an end, not as an end in itself. You know, I want it to be the means to nutty, buttery, cheesy prosciutto rather than salty prosciutto. Salty okay, prosciutto. you're making me hungry now because prosciutto is exactly the reason that I wanted to learn how to do this. And I saw some old man making this stuff up, throwing in some cases and hanging it out in his garage and said it can't be that simple. Could we talk about how you make that? Absolutely. It is It is. it. All your dreams can come true. It is exactly as simple as you imagine it to be. And I promise you that it will taste better than anything you can purchase in this country if you make it the simple way. And it's just what we talked about bacon. Me, personally, I tend to do a whole, you know, the prosciutto, which is the back leg of the pig, and I just use the coarse sea salt. Same exact principle. I put it in a tub in my fridge with a layer of salt on it. Um, And, you know, I don't weight it down or pack it in solid salt. I just do a nice layer, and I check it every day. Kind of like just to get a feel for it. Like I tell people when they do biltong, imagine a soft pretzel that's properly salted, about like that. 
Yeah, I would do a little more with the prosciutto. Okay, because it's a big, thick that. piece of meat. Yeah, it's a thick piece of meat, so you've got a lot of meat mass <laughs> that you're pulling yeah. water out of. And so I say a solid layer, you know, like a blanket of salt. Okay. And every day you drain the water that the salt pulls out of the meat so it never sits in the breading. And, again, when it's rigid and you're not getting a bunch of water in the tub anymore, that could take two weeks. That could take six weeks. It's all over the place, you know. Um, then you pull it out, rinse it off, hang it in your kitchen, and you got to wait two years before you cut into that thing. Ugh. And <laughs> it, it, it will knock your socks off. No wonder it's so expensive. Now, this guy that was making it, he was letting it hang like that. But what he did, and it sounded like exactly the same thing up to the point where it came out of the fridge, he rolled it in a mixture of paprika and cayenne and put it in a casing. Whoa, nice. Yeah, so that's like culatello. That's like an Italian style. That's cool. Yeah, so you that's that's not a wrong thing. You 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 you'd sanction that. Absolutely. I mean, there's no every time I say, "Oh, no, no one does it that way." I read, you know, some reference somewhere that no, they've been doing that in Latvia for 5 centuries. You know, it's like the variation on how to salt meat is infinite because before refrigeration, that's what everyone did. Sure. And uh, so there are no rules other than just try it out. So you're telling me that if I did what you just said with prosciutto, even though I'm down here in Texas, that would be okay because I've been kind of warned off of that because my climate is warm in the summer and, and all of that jazz. Yeah. So what you would want to do is start it in the winter. Okay. That's pig slaughter month is November. It's right now. So everyone traditionally starts all their cures, December, January, February. That way, by the time you get to the hot months, it's so dried out, it can be 95, 100 degrees in your house, and it'll be fine. Flies won't be interested in it because it's dry. If you're worried about fries, flies, you can press freshly ground black pepper into the surface of the meat, and that'll avoid yep. it. That's the biltong thing. That's why the yeah. pepper's there. That's cool. Yeah. That's bad. That's bridging uh, cultures there, South Africa to to Europe and America. Wow. Yeah. Very yeah. cool. Um, we skipped over a little bit though about like how was like bacon commodified because there was some of that stuff in your videos that was really interesting. I think people might like to know kind of how all these simple traditional skills have just been taken out of people's hands and completely put into like a a machine. Yeah. Yeah, it's a weird thing. Um, it's hugely unfortunate. And it's all been centralized. And one of the ways you can you notice this is that in America, this is the only country where there is an American style for butchering pork or for curing it. Everywhere else, there's not an Italian style or a French style. There's a million French styles and a million Italian styles. Because they've held on to a little bit of that regionality. But in America, you know, there's like three butchers in the entire nation that butcher 99% of all the pigs. And so there's definitely one or three ways to do it. And unfortunately, that standard trickles down to even the small-scale guys, to where you get people in my industry, you know, who they'll harvest maybe eight pigs in a day or three in a day. They are butchering and trimming exactly as the massive slaughterhouses would that are doing thousands in a week, um, which makes absolutely no sense. And the result is that pork starts to serve the commodity. It starts to serve the supermarket, not the home kitchen. 
And for me, butchery serves cookery in the home kitchen. You know, it's got to work for your kitchen. You don't have to know the names of cuts. If you know how to cook them all, you've butchered successfully. Um, and so that's what we try to do is we just want to empower home cooks, men and women, to be able to take back that sovereignty um, in their own kitchen and to know what kind of abundance can come from one pig. You can eat off of one pig if you cure it in the traditional method for three years. Hmm. It's incredible abundance. That is, that, that's awesome. And like you said, it, it makes a lot of sense that people that can't grow their own would start looking for local suppliers. And it's the good news there is I found it a lot actually easier as of late to find small producers selling, you know, a hog or a half a hog than to find small producers of beef. I think it's yeah. because it's a faster growth cycle and it's a little bit more profitable for the small person often to run hogs. Definitely. So it's available and, and it's more available than beef. And I'm from Texas where grass fed beef is everywhere and it's still more available. Yeah. Yeah. That's the same up here. And I think you just, the best place to start is going to a farmer's market because chances are the best, the guys that are selling vegetables, they grow two or three hogs every year just for their family. And they'll sell two of them and keep one to cover the costs, you know, for their own meat. And if, if people learn from you, they can do their own butchering, which I think they should be doing, honestly. Yeah. Um, in fact, can we talk a little bit about like what how what you do on Slaughter Day really affects what you can do with meats uh, when you cure it? And you say always leave the pig on the skin. That's great. How do we do that? How do we how do we get all that hair off of the skin? Yeah, yeah. That that part is really where um, nose to tail eating becomes possible. <clears throat> The unique thing about a pig amongst all the livestock that we eat is that it has skin like a chicken. It doesn't have a hide like venison or lamb, goat, or cow. It's got skin, and skin is delicious. Yeah. <laughs> pork rinds are. Um, and so it's also the case that if you remove the skin on a pig, you end up removing almost all the back fat. Because the back fat is a fat that's right beneath the skin, and there's no seam between fat and skin because, again, the skin is not a hide. There's no seam. And so the nearest seam is between back fat and pork chops. It's between back fat and meat. And so inevitably the butcher's knife falls into that seam, and the back fat gets thrown away with the skin and the hair. And the back fat is the most unique thing about the pig, or one of them. It's the only fat in the universe that doesn't turn the paste when you put it through a meat grinder. So it's essential for all sausage making, whether it's beef sausage or and especially for salami. And so when you scald and scrape a pig as opposed to skin it, you gain the head, the trotters, the tail, and all the back fat and all the skin, which is at least 30% of the pig's live weight. And uh, the trick to doing that is an extreme amount of stubbornness, for one, <laughs> It's difficult, but when I do it, I shoot the pig, and then I stick it to bleed it out, and then I hoist it up by its hind leg or its front legs and dip half of it into a 55-gallon drum, the water of which is heated to 145 degrees, okay. and that front half stays in the water for five minutes, and that is the magic number. Anything other than that will not work, and your life will be miserable all day long trying to get hair off. Because instead of loosening it, you'll set it. 
Exactly, and you'll make the skin soft, and you'll start taking chunks of skin out, and that's a big pain in the ass. So you pull it up, and then you scrape it off, and you're scraping off not only the bristles, but you're scraping off the pigmented layer of skin. So even a black pig will become pink after you've scraped it. And you scrape it with uh, hog scrapers, believe it or not, (laughs) or bell scrapers, and you can find those on eBay. They're antiques, but they're excellent tools. And then you lower it down, switch to the other side, and you dip the other half that didn't fit in the barrel. And that step alone opens up the entire world of traditional peasant curing, from baking to prosciutto, the whole thing, and all the salami, natural salami, which is a whole other topic we can get into. But without the bacteria on the skin, it is impossible for nitrate to be naturally converted to nitrite. And that's why all charcuterie recipes for salami and American charcuterie books call for a synthetic nitrite to be added because all the pigs are skinned and they're not healthy enough to have myoglobin in their flesh, which is the pigment, which also converts nitrate to nitrite. Um, So the scalding and scraping is really what defines the difference between the conventional process and the traditional process. And that's another reason to buy locally because I, you know, even if you, the only place I've ever been able to find pork with skin on is to go down to an Asian market. That's, yeah. that, that's the only place I can find a cut and, and not all the cuts are like that. Uh, and sometimes at Hispanic supermarkets you can as well, but it probably isn't done quite that way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so when we when we look at doing that, can we talk a little bit? Because you, you mentioned salami a couple of times. Yeah. How, how would we do that? Yeah, salami is trickier if you're a purist like me and you don't want to use nitrite. Um, so the difference from salami between salami and bacon, bacon being a whole muscle cure like prosciutto, guanciale, pancetta, all that stuff that you're just drying out. Salami is preserved not just by drying out; it's got to be fermented. Because you're grinding meat, so you're introducing bacteria to every square millimeter of the flesh just by mixing it with your hands and running it through the grinder. And so you've got to salt it 2% by weight. And that's the necessary salt content that um, creates a low enough pH to inhibit unfriendly bacteria like Clostridium botulinum, Listeria, and E. coli and all that stuff. Um, and there's several steps. And like I said, it's got to be a healthy pig because it's got to have myoglobin in the flesh. If it has that enough myoglobin and it has the staphylococcus and the micrococcus on the skin from being scalded and scraped as opposed to skin, then all you need to do is use a natural salt, like sea salt or a Celtic salt or a mine salt that has a natural trace amount of nitrate in it. And with the myoglobin and the bacteria from the skin, that nitrate will be converted to nitrite naturally and in a much smaller quantity than the synthetic powder that you would add. And that, in turn, is what knocks the pH down enough to prevent the bad stuff from from happening. And so I focus on separating the lean from the fat, and I hand chop the fat, and I mix everything together, and I mix the 2% salt, and you got to mix it thoroughly so that you start to, the, the mixture sticks to your hands and you get mm-hmm. stringies. And then you season it with delicious things like wine and garlic. And okay. it just so happens in the beauty of this universe that wine and garlic also have 
they also encourage lactic fermentation, which is exactly what another thing that knocks the pH way down, which is to say raises the acidity, which in turn makes pathogens unlikely to proliferate. They happen to be delicious, but they're also extremely useful in good salami. And then you stuff it in natural hog or beef casings, which are one-way valves. They only let water out, dry out, which is exactly their function in the guts of an animal. They only let water-soluble nutrients out into the bloodstream. And you hang that thing for, you know, it could be three weeks if it's in a hog casing, three to six weeks, or it could be six to ten weeks if it's in a beef middle, depending on what kind of texture you like. And I guarantee you it will knock your socks off because you cannot buy a real salami in this country as far as I know. The requirements make it impossible, which is why all salami is tangy and sour. Mm -hmm. It should be nutty and buttery and cheesy and sweet, not just sour and salty. Now, for people that can't maybe get their hands on pork of the quality that you're talking about, would you just say don't even bother to do it with, with a curing powder, or is there a place for that if, if, if that's what people are stuck with? Yeah, I think that if you absolutely can't get the good pork, but you need to have protein in your diet, then um, do the best you can with sourcing, and salami and curing would be the best way to maximize the nutrients of that pork and you would definitely i think you would want to follow a more follow a recipe from a cookbook written in this country that would prescribe certain amounts of nitrate and nitrite um, because it really all comes back down to the pig if it's a healthy pig and if it's processed without skinning then 90 percent of your battle is won and you can even do more research and find that in Europe, they require one-fifth the amount of nitrite in their cured salami that we do. Hmm. And so there's, there's... And they're not, there's not Europeans there. dropping over dying of botulism in every other country, you know? No, I, no. People are dying of botulism from baked potatoes wrapped in aluminum foil that sits out for several days at restaurants and then is turned into a soup. That's how the outbreaks happen. Oh, man. Yeah. So, um... How does, you know, curing these meats influence your kitchen? I mean, obviously things start to change if you have this high-quality stuff around. Everything, yeah. It totally revolutionizes your kitchen. I've got two prosciuttos hanging and, like, ten guanciales, which is jowl, and several bellies hanging in my kitchen right now. And um, it really changes the way you eat meat. You know, I, don't, I rarely ever have a, ma a massive steak or a pork chop in the middle of my plate with some vegetables on the outside. Um, it turns pork into more of a seasoning for your vegetables. So you actually end up eating more vegetables because they taste so good when they're cooked in rendered pork fat. And so my habit is I come home, I slice off a piece of cured bacon or guanciale, whatever it may be. If it's fatty, I just cube it up, put it in a skillet on low heat, and then walk away for a couple minutes and say hi to the boys. Come back and then throw in Brussels sprouts or kale or fry an egg or freshly made pasta, anything. You can cook anything in that stuff, and it's, uh, it'll knock your socks off. It's incredible. It simplifies cooking for sure in that way. <clears throat> well, let's talk a little bit about beef um, because the modern practices of butchery have even influenced grass-fed beef. A lot of people are turning to that <laughs> is a better product, but it, I think it still goes back to how is that meat handled. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that you can almost lose 
I don't know, make up a percentage, you know, 65% of the value of grass-fed beef if it is not if it's not dry-aged or butchered properly. And it's really simple. All you got to do is let the beef mature because that's how they put on fat. And the unique thing about grass-fed beef is that their fat comes from grass. <laughs> yeah. So it's delicious. It is yeah. so good. And so trimming that fat off is a degree of insanity to me that is totally incomprehensible. You should never trim fat off grass-fed beef, ever. It's insane, but I'll tell you what it is. The marketing is it's leaner meat, and the marketing is a lie. Yes. Grass-fed beef, leaner's a very, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, uh, personal kind of thing, like a subjective, yeah, subjective, subjective, right? So is it technically leaner, maybe a little bit, but it's not lean. A cow is not a lean animal. Right. It's a big fat grass chomping machine, yeah. and it's supposed to put fat on, especially as you move into the winter months. Yeah, yeah, and especially if you're allowed to let it age longer. I think in America they've all got to be harvested at 30 months. Um, and you've got to at least have a two-year-old grass-fed animal at least to get the mature grass-fed fat marbling that you're looking for. Mm-hmm. So the longer they live, the better, really. The best beef I have ever tasted was an 11-year-old Jersey dairy cow. She was completely marbled. She was skinny in the sense that she put all her energy into her milk. But we dry-aged her for over 30 days. And I didn't trim a thing. Sure, she got some molds on her in the walk-in, but the thing about molds is that they stay on the surface. They need oxygen. Mm -hmm. And so you can just scrape those off. And if you scrape them off, they are actually gone because they don't penetrate the meat. Works with cheese. Why not beef? Absolutely. And it was the most extravagantly delicious beef I've ever had. It was just incredible. And another thing that really helps is a focus on genetics, which in the grass-fed beef world – My impression is that it's kind of been neglected because some beef were designed, you know, decades and decades ago, centuries ago, to only eat grass or even forest understory and to fatten and create marbled meat on that kind of low input feed. And so like Devons are an excellent example of that, shorthorns. But, you know, if you do that with... uh, an Angus, a red or black Angus, they're going to put on a bunch of lean meat because their genetics have been selected by the meat industry to shy away from fat and to require high input at a feedlot. So genetics is another important part of this. Hmm. That's that's very very interesting. What are you know What are your thoughts on some of the things we can do with beef? I mean, we've talked about bacon and sausage and stuff like that with with pork. What are some of the maybe curing methods we can use for beef? Yeah. So I think. You know, the most basic thing is the 30-day cure. You've got to hang that thing. Let it hang for 30 days in the lock-in, especially if it's a fat, nice, fat, mature cow, and it's covered in white fat or yellow fat because it's grass-fed. Just let it hang. Um, but then, you know, there's lots of stuff. There's corned beef and pastrami. Mm-hmm. And corned beef is just – corning is just brining. You know, it's at its most basic – it's just salt dissolved in water. That's usually done with a brisket, right? You want to watch right. people how to do that? Because that's that one I know, and that one's easy. That's like stupid easy. So easy. All this is stupid easy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and then the only thing that makes pastrami different is that it's, it's basically just corned beef that's been covered in black pepper and, and smoked. That means it's better. 
Yeah, that's, that's another way to put that. Yeah. So let's so talk about the brine. How do we how do we brine up a brisket to make either one of those then? Yeah. So you know it depends on what you like, but if you're going for preservation, I would go along the lines of a slightly saltier brine. You know, um, and the cold smoking really helps dry it out. The tricky thing with you know and by preservation I mean you can hang the brisket in a cool drafty place in your house and it will never go bad. Um, and the thing about that is you need to have a slightly saltier brine and I would usually do, you know, like, uh, four pounds to a gallon and a half, four pounds of salt to a gallon and a half of water or wine or, uh, cider or whatever you want, maybe a little less salt, but that should be enough to impregnate it with salt, uh, sufficient to cure it. And then the cold smoker is this beautiful thing. You put the brisket in a cold smoke, and it dries it out because having sat in a brine, it is saturated with water, albeit salty water. But that standing water is still makes it slightly unstable um, and, and open to spoilage. But the smoker dries it all out, um, and then you can, you can hang that, and it will keep forever, and you can slice off what you want, um, or you pull it out of the brine and you just simmer it for hours, and you're pulling salt out and braising and cooking it at the same time. And that's your corned beef instead of that, your That's your corned beef, yeah. So really simple. And the basic thing is just the salt and the water. But oh, I lost him. You can go to town, you know, whatever you want to do, all kinds of spices. Um, the other thing is brisala, which is commonly done with beef in, um, in Italy. And that's basically... Just what we were talking about with curing pork, it's the same process. It's a tubular muscle in the leg, but really you could use whatever whatever makes sense. It's usually a leg muscle, and it's got a period on the salt, and you can do dry salt or brine. I think dry salt's a little easier, um, and it's easier to not over-salt if you're just applying dry salt. And the same test applies. When it achieves a little bit of rigidity and it's not exuding a bunch of water into the tub, then it's done. Take it out, rinse it of the cure, and you can tie it up and hang it. And I like to actually plaster it with pork lard. Um, and that kind of slows down the rate at which it dries out. In anything that I cure, I'm always trying to slow the whole process down to get flavor-producing enzymes an opportunity to do their work. Because if you just blast something with salt, even if you're not using nitrate or nitrite, you, you kind of lock it in. And it's just salty meat. But if you can really slow that process down and only salt just enough to dry it out to be preserved and no more, then you'll be amazed at the kind of flavors you get. You've used a word a couple of times. I don't know. Charcuterie? Charcuterie. Charcuterie. Yeah. What is, what's that? Yeah, it's a really useful French word. Um, I think it literally it translates to cooked meat. But based, as far as I understand it, it's, Ready to eat meat, whatever that is. And so it is a broad term that encapsulates all the dry cures, bacon, prosciutto, um, guanciale, and encapsulate, it involves salami and even fresh sausage, pate, um, all these value-added products from the raw uh, carcass, head cheese. It's a broad term. On that note, a lot of people have a real concern with uncooked pork and trichinosis. Mm. And a lot of these curing methods involves no cooking. That's right. Yeah, that's a good thing to bring up. Um, 
And a little research will show you that there's only one way that a pig can get trichinosis. It's a trichina worm. And that's if they're eating dead animals. So with a pasture pig, the only way it's possible for that pig to contract trichinosis is if it eats a deer that dies in its paddock or eats a dead rat. And the worm will go into that rotting flesh as part of the decomposition process, and then the pig eats the worm. And that's generally how – that's actually the only way it happens. And even then um, – you don't have to cook it to 170 degrees to kill it, like the FDA says, it, which destroys all pork. Oh, it's just way too high cooking temperature if you're roasting anything. Um, the trichina worm dies at 137 degrees. Okay. Which is as rare as you'd want to roast any leg of pork or, yeah. uh, or pork chop. Um, and so, in general, it almost is, it does not exist really in the American pork supply because they're not feeding uh, dead, raw flesh to pigs anymore. Okay. And the likelihood that your pasture pig is going to eat a dead deer or a dead rat in its pat in its paddock when it's fat and happy and being fed well is extremely low. They don't like to work for their food. They're scavengers way before they are hunters. Okay. Oh, that's 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 really interesting to know. Um. How, let's let's do like a couple more things here, uh, and then we'll we'll kind of wrap up. How about making a ham? I mean, Christmas is coming. There might be yeah. time left to, to to pull that off. Yeah, <clears throat> that's just a brine. And uh, the further south you get, you know, you guys have some pretty awesome awesome ham traditions there, um, ranging from putting a ham in a brine and then even pulling it out of that, doing dry salt and then hang it from the apple tree for five years and watch that sucker get covered in mold, just completely covered in the humid, you know, humid Southern weather. Yeah. And, um, and then you boil it for, you know, five hours and then you cut all the skin off and you apply your rich honey mustard glaze and then you bake the hell out of it at high temperature for about 40 minutes. And that's, you know, that's southern ham. Um, a simplified version is I, I just take a fresh leg of pork, which is what the ham is made from, the back leg, and I brine it in, I think my brine's about 17% salinity, but in any case, it's uh, 7.5 quarts of water to 2.5 pounds of salt and 2.5 pounds of sugar. That's my ratio. And uh, after about four days, Four or five days in that, one half of a leg of pork, which is still about a five-pound roast, um, will be at a really nice, pleasant salt level. And I take it out on day five or so and simmer it in water for about an hour and a half to two hours, and that's pulling water out or pulling salt out. Okay. Uh, because right, if you don't do that, the ham will probably be a little too salty, and it's also cooking the ham. And then you do the same thing, cut the skin off, apply your glaze, and blast it just to, just enough to crisp the glaze. And then you eat all you can that night. Um, <laughs> and then you put the leftovers in the fridge, and you got cold-cut ham for sandwiches for weeks and for breakfast. You know, it'll just keep in your fridge as it continues to dry out. Um, so that's the basic ham method. Um, you can increase the salinity of your brine a little bit. And you can keep a ham in a brine for way over a month. You know, it's, a, it's also a way to preserve the ham. Um, just know that the longer it's in there and the higher the salt content of the brine, the more salty the ham's going to be. Mm. 
And so you're going to have to simmer it in fresh water for a longer period of time and probably have to change out the water a few times. Okay. Um, but in any case, you know, all of that is well under your control. It's not a mysterious process. You're just impregnating the ham with salty water for flavor and to make it tender because salt brine breaks down protein binders and to make it moist, which is always the challenge with the back leg muscles of any quadruped is that they are tough and lean. And the way that humans have creatively dealt with that is by brining it because that makes it tender and juicy. Now, for just using salt, do we end up with a ham that's pink? No, it might be a little gray. Okay. Yeah, and uh, the pinkness comes from the, you know, an additive. Um, yeah. You would, you would add some nitrite to it, and that would pink it up, and it would add a kind of a tangy flavor. Um, I never do that. I like to taste the ham and not the sourly tangy flavor. I always taste it, and it drives me nuts. The only reason I bring that up for people is because the, the mind of the human being has been fundamentally altered to think certain things are wrong. Right? <laughs> so they see this gray ham, they, like, freak out. Because we used to do that with, with deer hams, frankly. Oh, yeah. And, and people wouldn't eat it because it didn't look like ham. It's like, well, yeah. why don't you try tasting it, you know? <laughs> yeah. The flavor is a much more important thing, I would think. Yeah. Um, on on venison, it's hunting season. Uh, what say you to do with deer? Um, you know, a lot of people like to make jerky. You say turning a whole deer to jerky is a travesty. I agree. Um, one thing I noticed when I saw you taking that pig apart, and it's probably just because the pig's a much bigger animal, yeah. but, like, when you were doing the shoulders and all, like, when I when I do a deer, I'll hang it up. And, like, the front legs, I just take the whole front leg. I don't take that front quarter off the way that you did. I take that front leg yeah. put out from the body, and I go in there with my knife, and there's no bone at all there, and you just take that whole shoulder off. Would you do a deer that way or more like you did a, a hog? Well, I tend to quarter up the deer like I do the pigs, like I did in the video, which is on anatomyofthrift.com, the the. the I think it's called the side butchery video. Yeah, it was awesome. That's the one that made me want to get pigs. Yeah, thank you. That's great. That uh, That's actually how I butcher all quadrupeds because they all have the same physiology. They've all got four legs, and then mm -hmm. they've all got a spine that connects the four legs. And so I like to separate those regions from each other because you keep all the shoulder muscles together because Got they're it. all tough, right? They're used yeah. all the time. Um, and so they have toughness and that tells you how to cook it. If you know that it's tough, then you know, you need to either, you know, turn it into sausage or braise it. And if it's lean, which venison almost always is, at least up here where I'm from, it's always yeah. lean. Yeah. Um, you got, you might need to add some fat to the braise. And by braise, I mean like a stew, you know, liquid with a heavy pot and low, low, slow simmer for a long period of time. Yeah, you've used the word simmer a couple times, and just in the interest of people not ruining food, simmering is not boiling. Simmering exactly. is barely moving the, the liquid. Absolutely. It's going bubble, bubble, bubble. You're boiling it. Don't do that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Maybe one little shy bubble every once in a while. Yeah, and so I follow that physiology, you know, and I leave all the the back strap or the loin on a deer, which is what runs along the spine. The deer almost never uses that muscle unless yeah. it's standing up on its hind legs, and then you got some problems. Um, so that is really tender. That's why you can pan fry those or barbecue them, you know, rare. Mm -hmm. You don't have to cook them long enough to break down tough 
fascia or tough musculature because there isn't any. It's all tender. And the the brining is an awesome thing. You mentioned making hams out of the deer haunches or the back leg. That is that is the best way to go. That's what I do. I brine them just like I, dry, I brine a pig ham. And uh, through that brining process, they, the tough leanness of a deer's leg, which is exponentially more than any other livestock that we consume, the, the deer has got the leanest, toughest hind leg, as far as I know. Brining makes that just so tender and delicious. It breaks it down and it keeps it juicy to the point where you can actually roast it dry in an oven. And as long as you don't overcook it, it'll just be like a beautiful, um, more like a beef roast, but even more flavorful. Yeah, definitely. Um, Because I've had butchers, uh, you know, deer butchers make deer ham for me, and it was nothing like we made, and it was way over over salted and not really that great. Yeah. It's a great way to go. And generally with brining, the only, the other, I should mention, the other reason people add nitrite uh, or trait to brines, in addition to the pinkness, is if it's going to go to a smoker. Okay. Yeah, I want to talk, talk have, about that with ham, with, with smoking. Yeah. We kind of skipped that. I had that on the agenda here. Um, so if we're going to smoke it, do we want to, you know, add that additive? Yeah, it's only if you're using a modern-made smoker that is airtight. So a lot of smokers are, you know, just boxes, more or less, uh, that are anaerobic. There's no oxygen in there, um, and they're filled with smoke, which also excludes a lot of oxygen. So an anaerobic environment like that is susceptible to the proliferation of Clostridium botulinum because it can multiply in uh, an anaerobic environment. Absolutely. Yeah, and so that's why I like the old school smokers. You know, they're these drafty structures with siding with four inches of space in between each, you know, panel. And the fire's over way far in one corner and the meat's on the opposite corner downwind. And there's airflow in there. You know, it's drafty. There's oxygen being introduced all the time. And, and if that's the kind of smoking scenario you've got, the nitrite is not necessary because there's oxygen in there. Um, I like the old school smokers much better anyway. Always build your own. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, it's not, that's an easy thing to do too. That, uh, definitely. It's not, it's not necessarily always the case that amazon.com is your solution to a need. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, on, on this stuff, like you're giving out a bunch of stuff, but people always kind of like to have a, a guide to go by. Do you have any resources of your own or others you can recommend where people can feel, you know, when they, they look something up and they're going to make it with measurements and all, a little more confident uh, that yeah. they're not going to kill themselves? Yeah. What I encourage is um, stay away from recipes in general. Um, they don't actually teach you anything, and they encourage fear, even though it feels like, you know, they're the only way to really avoid messing up a cure. All that means is you don't have to understand how to cure as long as you follow the recipe. And that's if anything is sketchy, that's sketchy. And so I direct people pretty much to stuff that has not been produced in this country because all of the meat curing books out there written in America are more about liability than they are about meat curing. And so the first sentence is always, if you don't do this exactly like I tell you, you will die a horrific death through paralysis of your lungs. Now go for it. You know, it's like, come on, a little education would be much better. And so I direct people to 
uh, other resources. One of my favorite is the River Cottage uh, stuff, and that's from Britain. And you can find them on YouTube, and there's a whole TV series and a few cookbooks. But the River Cottage meat book, Burnley Whittingstall, are just beautiful. Um, and I really prefer them because they do not treat nitrite like uh, a life-saving uh, substance. They are more discerning about it, and they work with tradition. And you can also look up Jane Grigson's book that's out of print, but you can get it on Amazon, and it's called Charcuterie and French Pork Cookery by Jane Grigson. Another beautiful anecdotal, full of traditional anecdotes, both of the, all these resources focus on method, not recipe. So they actually empower you with knowledge and ability rather than uh, shackle you to a list with quantities. And uh, in all humility, I can say that the best online resource are the videos that I made. Um, they are on Anatomy of those Because I was trying to buy them, and I guess I don't have to? Or No, they're free. Okay. They are free, available to the cosmos, and they're on anatomyofthrift.com, and there's three of them. And there's one on butchering a side of pork, and um, the second one is on all the things you'd make with the highly perishable items from Slaughter Day, head cheese, pate, and blood sausage. And then the third one is on curing or preserving meat with the use of salt and fat, which is something we didn't even get into, but that's a whole other way to preserve meat is uh, with lard. And they're awesome. They're just, we tried to make them winsomely instructive. And uh, judging from how people have received them, I think we were successful. Yeah, I mean, I watched the one. I didn't realize they were all available. I, I don't remember how I found that one probably on your website. But I'll make sure I have links to all of these things then available for people so that they can uh, partake in them. And, uh, and Brandon, thank you for being on the show today. Yeah, my pleasure, Jack. Thanks for having me. And, of course, I want to make sure people know your main website. So you've got anatomyofthrift.com with these videos, and I'm, I'm there right now, and it's just the three videos ready to go. Yeah. Um, and then you have uh, farmsteadmeatsmith.com as well. And in addition to, like, your online presence, you do workshops and trainings and stuff. So how can people yeah. find out about how to come learn directly from you if they want to? Yeah, so go to the website and sign up for our newsletter. That's the way to do it. And I send out a newsletter um, once every two months or so, whenever I schedule a whole slew of classes. And that's, I usually schedule like 14 or 15 at a time. And these are day-long, hands-on classes. So we take all day with usually about eight people, and we'll slaughter two pigs. And I'll do the, the gunshot and the sticking, and then everyone else, I, I direct everyone through, every, through the rest of the processes. And we'll catch blood and make blood sausage if we have time, clean intestines, we can harvest everything, and then we'll do a butchery day the next day, and that'll take all day, and we'll break the pigs down, and then we'll even do a third day curing. And sometimes we do curing days where the freezer is not an option. None of the meat is wrapped for, for the freezer. Very, very cool, man. Well, I'll see if sometime in the future I can get up there with you, man. Yeah, we'll do it. I'd love, love to. Anyway, with that, man, I, again, thank you for being on the show today, and uh, I really appreciate you, and I just want to say I love the way you're doing things. Your videos were, I, there's nothing like them. I, I, that's just the way I would put it, from seeing the one. There's nothing like them that I've ever seen produced, and it's it's awesome the way that you're spreading the message on things like this. And again, thank you for that and for being on the show today. My pleasure. Thank you, Jack. And folks, with that, this has been Jack Spierka today, along with Brandon Sheard, helping you figure out how to live that better life. If times get tough, 
or even if they don't. Revolution is you.